Thank you, Brett. You know, I set all my clocks forward, but uh, my body did not get the memo <laughs> that we were moving up an hour. How many of you forgot that it was happening until this morning? Yeah? Thanks for being honest. We appreciate it. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills. If we haven't met, I would love to shake your hand. We are uh, in our third week into our Lenten series that's called Questions, Bringing Everything to God bringing everything to God, because I believe that God can handle our tough questions, that he can handle our doubts, our laments. Um, and today, we're talking about something that is, is maybe something difficult for us to uh, face on a day-to-day basis. Today, we're talking about repentance. Oh, some of you are like, oh, I shouldn't have come today. Repentance. How do I repent, and what role does repentance play in my life as a Jesus follower? You know, when we hear the word repent, our minds quickly conjure up images of people standing on street corners holding big signs with like fire behind it, right? And there's, they say, repent for the end is near, yeah? There's all this kind of doom and gloom, and it, and it makes this re- repentance out to be something that's based solely off of like fear. But remember that the gospel is not just about the fact that we are being saved from something, it's about the fact that we are being saved to something, Right? When we look at how repentance is used in the Gospels, we see that when Jesus talks about it, he usually says this, repent for the end is near. No, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance is not just about running from sin, it's about running to God. So most of us have like head knowledge, right? We have this intellectual understanding that God forgives us. Right? Like we, we know that theologically. Jesus forgives our sins, no matter how terrible they are. However, we forget that Jesus died and resurrected not just because he wants us to be forgiven of all the bad stuff we've done. He does. But he also wants us to live into the good stuff that he has prepared for us. Sin is really the thing that gets in the way of God's plans for his people. Jesus has forgiven our sins. In fact, he perpetually forgives us when we inevitably sin again, right? Jesus modeled that in the Gospels. He says, okay, if you guys, Jesus, how many times should we forgive people that wrong us? And he says, well, 70 times 7, right? This is is not just a literal number. This is actually meant to, to describe like perpetual eternity. Forgive them always, no matter what. So we're going to talk about this difficult and yet beautiful practice, these practices of confession and repentance. But first, We have to deal with something that usually keeps us from ever going there in the first place. One word. Shame. Shame. See, the enemy knows that sin can no longer keep us from the love and life of God. So what does he use instead? He uses shame. I've talked about this before, but shame is different than guilt. Right? Guilt is my conscience which was designed by God. And now, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, it alerts me when I have violated shalom. What is shalom? Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. This is perfect harmony in all of creation between us and the Creator and with one another. That's what shalom is. Whenever I've violated that, whenever I've stepped outside of God's plan to love other people and to love Him and to be loved by Him, when I miss the mark on what God has intended for the world, the Holy Spirit and my conscience Let me know that that has occurred. Guilt is the check engine light on my dashboard. And when it's working properly, it's an indicator that the way that I've been living or the things that I've been doing has brought harm to myself, has brought harm to somebody that I love. And of course I don't want that. Guilt is an ally 
Guilt is helpful. It's my way of knowing that the mechanism within me that, that, that points me to shalom, that my compass is working. But shame, shame is something different. Shame distorts the story. Now I don't simply feel bad about what I've done. Now I feel bad about who I am. Shame whispers lies about who I am. And it pushes me into hiding and into isolation. It leads me away from shalom because shalom means that I have to move towards people. It means that I have to make peace. But isolation keeps me from people. It isolates me. I'm, a, I'm not dealing with uh, the things in my life. I'm avoiding them, not facing what needs to be reconciled. And a huge aspect of the season of Lent is the practice of repentance. Repentance is us partnering with God, leveraging that guilt, that, that indicator on our dashboard, to propel us into the fullness of life that God has for us. It's a good thing. It's true that, that guilt is hard, that confession is hard, that repentance is hard, that it requires this thing called humility. It's not a good feeling in the moment. But if you've ever practiced confession and repentance, you know that on the other side, that's freedom. That's peace. The most common word for repentance in the Greek is matineo. And this term actually implies a transformation of perspective towards a sinful behavior. It's an abhorrence with that sin. So there is an aspect of guilt and repentance which invites us to look upon our sin and the harmful nature of our ways and then to feel disgusted with it. That is a part of it. I look at the sin and I go, that's awful. I think about the parable of the two sons, right, where the younger son, being rebellious, goes and spends his wealth on wild living, whatever that means, and he loses everything, and he's now in this pit with these pigs, these unclean animals that are eating their fill, and he's sitting there with nothing, and he goes, what, what has my life brought me to? That's matineo, realizing, having the, the, my eyes awakened to see where my life has brought me, right? When we look at sin with the kingdom perspective, it should appall us, it should us because I know how it harms the world and how it harms my relationships. But not just that, it should also offend us because it is a mockery of the beautiful, glorious life that I should be living. It's a mockery of the glorious and beautiful plan that God has for me because I know he has so much more intended for me. It should appall us, it should disgust us, however, because of the hope of the resurrection, it should not intimidate us or be threatening to us. We have forgiveness in Christ. It's given us permission to look upon our sin and to join in with Jesus at abhorring the sin. That's awful, isn't it, God? Thank you for showing me how awful that is. Those are difficult and unpleasant emotions that come with repentance, but there's also a peace and a freedom and a joy. So what keeps us from stepping into this process, if we know that leaning into those difficult emotions and, and working out those things with Jesus, we know that it leads to a better life and better things that God has planned for me, what keeps me from doing it? It's shame. Shame whispers the lies about who I am. It makes it feel like it is impossible to step towards God. That it is impossible to step towards people in reconciliation and relationships. For this, we're going to go back, way back to Genesis 3. So we're going to be this morning. Now, what has happened up to this point? God has created the world, called it good, created human beings, said this is very good. You guys rule that. You do what you got to do. But listen, you can do anything you want, eat anything you want. Just don't eat that tree. 
eat that tree. <laughs> eat from that tree. Just imagine them biting into the bark. Don't eat from that tree. And this is where we come. The fall. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sorry, when I read this to my son, I animate it, so I just I feel like I have to speak the voices. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I have commanded you not to eat from. And now God spells out the consequences of this unfortunate event, right? We're going to skip down to verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay, how many of you have ever had the, the naked dream, right? The classic naked dream. Like you show up at work or you show up at school and halfway through your day you look down and oh my gosh, I forgot to put pants on, right? Why do we have this dream? <laughs> Why does this happen? It's so horrifying, right? What is my brain doing when I have this naked dream? Psychologists, email me. I'd love to know. I happen to have this recurring nightmare that uh, all semester long, I've forgotten to go to a class that I registered for, and now it's the final, and I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> like, I have not been an undergrad for 10 years. Why do I keep having the same <laughs> nightmare? That has nothing to do with anything. Um, it's just you guys hearing my therapy session. So back to the naked dreams. There's something so innately human about the shame of being naked, right? To some degree, we get to choose, because of clothing, how people see us. Right? We know what shirts and outfits to wear that hide the things that I don't want you to see and how to emphasize the things that I want to highlight, right? I've chosen to wear a shirt today that hides my incredible biceps. I'm being thoughtful. <laughs> but nakedness... Nakedness takes away that advantage, right? Now you're just seen for who you truly are, and that's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. And when we're completely vulnerable, it's very easy to experience shame because we feel like there's something innately wrong with who we are, right? But life apart from that shame is supposed to be true freedom. You know who has no shame? Little kids. No shame. My son, especially when he was younger, had no shame. He loved being naked everywhere, all the time, for no reason. I would just walk out of the room and come back, and he stripped down to his birthday suit, and I'm like, we're having dinner. What are we doing, right? 
He had nothing to hide from us, right? Because we had shown, his mother and I had shown him that he can trust us. So he was completely able to be fully himself, be confident in his vulnerability. I always tell young couples who are getting married, when I'm doing premarital stuff with them, that, that the pleasure of sex is great. Good job, God, on that one. We appreciate it. But it's the nakedness, the vulnerability that creates intimacy. And ultimately, it's not our ability to give our spouses physical pleasure, which is great. But that's not what makes sex the most valuable thing. It's our willingness to offer ourselves fully and truly to the other. It's a gesture of trust and intimacy, right? So why did Adam and Eve experience shame? And why did they say it was because they were naked? They were always naked. Nothing changed except for the fact that they had sinned. They became like God over their own lives for themselves, becoming the Lord of their own decisions. And apart from God's design, they now discovered that they had something to hide. And this human tendency to hide away in our shame, it's always counterproductive because healing, reconciliation, redemption, it always takes place in community, doesn't it? It cannot take place in isolation. It can't. No redemption story, no reconciliation, no forgiveness ever took place when somebody isolated and secluded themselves. Never happened. Notice the first question in the garden was not, what have you done, Adam and Eve? The first thing that he said was, where are you? Where are you? God's first concern was not actually the sin. It was the fact that the wedge, that that there was a wedge that had been driven by that sin and by that shame between God and his children. That was his main concern. You know, this passage is rich with all sorts of sorts of themes and ideas that we could talk about, but I only have two hours, so I'm going to be more selective. I'm kidding. I don't have two hours. <laughs> I felt the room sink just now. <laughs> it's a joke, people. All right. I want to focus on the shame aspect of the story. When we look at verse 8, we see this phrase, in the cool of the day, right? There's a bit of a scholarly debate about this phrase. Nobody can seem to fully agree on what it means, but it's interpreted in three different ways. I'll give you all three, and I'll tell you which one that I tend to think it is. One, the cool of the day is just a reference to the time of day that it was. When the sun is going down, the sun is not as hot, so it's cooler, cool of the day. Seems logical. The second kind of describes this like juxtaposition paradox of paradise, where it's the day where it should be really, really hot, but it's cool. So there's like, there's like this untouched perfection uh, side of nature. And the third meaning is that, and I think it's really interesting, there's this sister language to Hebrew called Akkadian. And they have these parallel words and parallel phrases to the Hebrew. And when we look at these parallels, some have argued that the phrase cool of the day might actually mean wind of the storm, which is interesting. And I actually think that this makes sense because of the way that Adam and Eve are hiding in fear. The presence of God never used to be something that they were afraid of. But now something that had, was so natural to them, that was so life-giving to them before, has now become a threat. What had once been the unthreatening presence of God now caused fear. In the same way that their nakedness, which was once so innocent and unnoticed, now causes great shame. Our sin, our reordering of the good, it tends to weaponize the beautiful things that God has created and intended to serve us, and it turns it against us. The presence of God was never meant to be threatening to humanity. In fact, human beings were made to be in perfect union with him. So we wrestle constantly with these impulses of of fear and shame. 
we assume that the first thing that God wants to ask us is, what have you done? But really, his first concern always with us is, where are you? Perhaps there are those of us who approach God, who approach prayer with this position of fear. Don't get me wrong. There is like a holy fear, like a reverence and awe as we approach the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That's real, right? Like when Isaiah sees the image of God in the tabernacle in this vision, he says, woe to me. I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips. The magnitude of who God is and the, and the dirtiness of his sin, it causes shame in the presence of God. But notice that in that same vision, the angel of the Lord comes with an iron and touches his lips and purifies it. And this is a signal of the coming Messiah who takes away the sins of the world and ushers us into the presence of the Father. That's who God is. He's a mighty God. He's the powerful creator. He's, he's the Lion of Judah. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is all those things, but he chose to relate to us as Father. Father. It's an intimate relationship. And he tells his disciples, hey, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So when we're exposed to the love of God, we obey not out of fear and obligation. We obey out of love and gratitude who God is to us. God's posture towards you is always, where are you? Always. So you can write this down, and it's a pretty simple thing, but it's true. No matter what you've done, God wants to be with you. I know you've heard this about a thousand times. Why is it so hard for us to keep it at the forefront of our minds? No matter what you've done, God will, but Lane, you don't understand what I did to, to 10 years ago. God wants to be with you. But you don't understand. I've done this thing for 10 years and I can't stop. God wants to be with you. But you don't understand when this thing happens, the thought that comes into my mind, God still wants to be with you. You fill in that blank with anything as horrific and as awful as you can. And guess what? The radical nature of the gospel is that despite anything you could fill that gap with, God still wants to be with you. I might not want to. I'm just kidding. God always wants to be with you. Adam and Eve, they make themselves these coverings out of fig leaves, and they're hiding from God. And, God tells, and, and Adam tells God, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God asked them, who told you you were naked? When I read this, I kind of feel the heartbrokenness of a parent, right, in God's voice. Who, who told you you were naked? Who said that? Their existence up to this point was so pure and untouched by perversion. There was nothing wrong with being naked. And then sin entered the world, and it does what it always does. Is it distorts God's goodness and repurposes it for something harmful and shameful. We already know my son likes to be naked, but he also likes to dance. And sometimes he likes to do both of those things at the same time. <laughs> he really does dance with so much joy and vigor. I have a 12-minute, 12 12, 12 sorry, 12-second clip that I want to show you of my son dancing. It doesn't matter where we are, what we're doing. He has no shame. He just wants to dance, right? It's like my favorite thing in the world to watch him dance. But hear me. In a merely, like, technical sense, it, it's not good. 
Like, hear, hear what I'm saying? Like, Juilliard isn't, like, calling me up and, like, offering me busloads of cash for him to come to their school, right? But it's one of the most beautiful and joy-filled things I've ever seen. I would be so heartbroken and angry if somebody walked up to my son and told him, you know, it's not very skillful. It's true. But it has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> it's nothing for him to be ashamed of because it's pure and it's good. Nothing except for our perceptions of what and who we are changes that makes us feel ashamed. What once was pure and innocent can now carry the weight of shame because of sin. But here's the thing that God does with our shame. He doesn't abandon us to our own devices, right? He enters into the story, and then he gives us what we need in order to face our demons and to weather our own self-imposed storms. See, God knew that because of what they had done, they were now going to be in conflict with the earth they were intended to have dominion over, right? It twists God's design. And God knew that that was going to be the case, but he didn't say, like, well, good luck with that. I'll see you later. Don't come crying to me when you can't get the pH balance in the soil right, right? That's not what God did. No, God, notice, he covers them in their shame. He creates coverings out of animal skin. He equips them with more durable clothes that they will need to handle the struggles ahead. You ever notice that our Heavenly Father is actually a father? Like he's parenting us? You know how frustrating that is? That God is parenting us? He always forgives us, but he doesn't always bail us out. Sometimes we wish he did, right? There's this difficult aspect of repentance when we bring our sin and our shame to God. We rest, knowing that there's nothing too big for his death and resurrection. There is no boundary for renewal in my life, but forgiveness doesn't mean I get to just walk away from the consequences of my sin. After we confess our sins and receive his forgiveness and and his grace, we then have a part to play. We have to then move towards reconciliation. Because when I've sinned, I always, always end up hurting someone else or myself. And now we get to repent to the people that we've hurt. Jesus did away with the reality of death, but the pathway to new life requires that we die to ourselves. So you can write this down. In our repentance, God equips us for the work of reconciliation. In our repentance, God equips us for the work of reconciliation. So as we confess our sins, we receive forgiveness for our sins, and we move towards reconciliation with those we've wronged, it requires, here's that word again, humility. And that's when those who receive the confession and the repentance of brothers and sisters, we then get to embody the grace of Jesus to those people. Jesus teaches us pretty clearly that we have to forgive others. That if we want to take our forgiveness of our sins seriously, we have to take the forgiveness of other people's sins seriously. Seventy times seven. There is no room in the kingdom of heaven for keeping score. It doesn't work that way. No room for superiority. We read in the scriptures time and time again, if you are proud, God will oppose you. But he will exalt you if you're humble. Someone who knows how to confess and ask for forgiveness and repent and reconcile, that's somebody who knows humility. That's somebody who's spiritually healthy. Confession and repentance is not a one-way transaction. We actually have a part to play when somebody confesses to us. So write this down. Repentance is not a way to keep score. It's a pathway to reconciliation. Repentance is not a way to keep score. It's a pathway to reconciliation. And now I want us to take notice of the end of this curse. 
in verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is where we get the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If we go back a chapter in the book of Genesis, we read that God formed human beings out of the dust, and then he breathed his presence into them, his ruach, his spirit. So that means without his presence, we're just dirt. (laughs) We're just dirt without him. That's an important reality to remember, that to exist apart from the presence of God is to exist as something less than fully human. It's not what he wants. Without his presence, without his spirit, we are but dust. And this all ties back into the imagery that we use in Lent, right? Lent is about lament and grief and repentance. It's not just about the grief that we carry in our losses. It's about the grief that we carry about our sin. Part of repentance is choosing to take the time to sit in the reality of our sin and to actually grieve it, to abhor it, to matineo, so that when I turn away from it, I then run to Jesus. I can stop hiding and start abiding. I hate that that rhymes. I didn't plan it that way, but now you remember it. We stop hiding and we start abiding. Lent begins with the recognition of Ash Wednesday. We celebrated this a couple weeks ago, right? When Jesus' followers rub ashes on their foreheads in the shape of a cross. And traditionally, those ashes are made from the palms of Palm Sunday the year before. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter, right? Where all the people threw the palms at Jesus' feet. And they wanted him eagerly, eagerly contended for him to deliver them and to save the world according to their will, through military might. And of course, Jesus did save the world, but according to his Father's will, through sacrificial love. I want to read a blog post of an old mentor of mine that he posted on Ash Wednesday. He said, Today is Ash Wednesday, the start of the 40-day journey into Holy Week. The ashes from last year's Palm Sunday celebration remind us of the futility of our solutions. Try as we might, the Messiah who comes, the Messiah we actually need, will not be forced into the mold of the Messiah we want or think we need. If he is not strong enough to resist us, he is not strong enough to help us. And so we sit in the ashes of what we have made our lives and humbly invite the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts, to see the hidden things and gently, lovingly bring them to light. The practices that support this solemn consideration are solitude and silence coupled with fasting, and all three are designed to push against our superficiality and shake up our systems of self-defense, bringing us to an acknowledge bring us to acknowledge our desperate need for a savior, for help. It is a forced, slow walking with an invitation to pay attention, to notice how God is at work, uncovering the little idols that we have made to get us through the days. And it is a challenge to repent to change direction in light of the new awareness, knowing that if we don't change direction, we're going to end up up where we are headed. And so we pray, Lord, have mercy. Repentance is meant to be difficult. We are meant to experience guilt and abhorrence, but after that, we get to experience joy because of the mercy of God. So you can write this down. Repentance is the pathway to a life of joy in Jesus. Repentance is the pathway to a life of joy in Jesus. Because our way breeds brokenness, and his way brings life. We turn away from death-bringing practices and turn towards the life giver. In the scriptures, we see, God, we see the people of God practice repentance by rubbing ashes on themselves, and also by wearing sackcloth, which is like rough animal fur. And in that practice, we're reminded of our outcome apart from God. We are but dust. We rub that on ourselves. But yet, remember that in our shame... God covers us. 
That's the nature of God's love towards us. So once we put shame in his place and we move towards our God, our loving Heavenly Father, we are free to joyfully repent as we turn away from sin and run to him. So take this with a grain of salt. This is just the gospel according to Lane. But here are the four steps to repentance. Okay? Four steps to repentance. One, acknowledge your weakness with humility. You have to grieve your sin. You have to abhor it. You have to actually become offended by it. And then you have to acknowledge, I'm ashes without God. I'm dust. I'm dirt. And you remember the sackcloth, that God covers me in my shame. Two, we have to be renewed in our thinking, right? Paul talks about this. It's not enough just to manage my behavior. I actually have to shift my perspective. I have to practice mindfulness. I have to be aware that I'm reacting, that I'm coping to my environment, and I have to retrain those worldly reflexes into heavenly responses, right? Three, then I have to confess my sins to God and to one another. It is super important that we have people in our life with whom we can be brutally honest. No filter. Brothers or sisters in Christ who will graciously pour out the mercy of God and also see what God has prepared for you and call you into that. And then we turn to Jesus. I mean, turning to Jesus is kind of all of this. But sin is us meeting our needs in ways that God never intended us to. What does it look like for me to trust in God to meet those needs? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, in him I lack nothing. What does it actually mean for me to believe this? So I'm going to give us a little tool for repentance. It's a daily ritual called the prayer of examine. It was developed by St. Ignatius in the 15th century. The prayer of examine is kind of like sitting down with the head coach to watch the tapes of the game, right? It's kind of like the prayer of review. Um, and the goal is not to dwell on the mistakes and to live in the shame. It's the, it's the goal is to step into what God has intended for me. I think about that scene from Remember the Titans, right? When Cheryl Yost, like 10-year-old little girl, and Coach Boone, you know, they're, they're watching the tape of the game. And Cheryl's like, we're still weak on the left side. And he's like, you're not weak on the left side. We just got to work harder on the left side. So imagine that God is Denzel Washington in this prayer, right? You're sitting with him. He's showing you where we can improve, right? So here's how the prayer of examine works. There's five steps. First, we center. This is where we practice the art of Christian mindfulness. We acknowledge the presence of God in our lives, and we ask for his clarity as we pray through uh, the prayer, right? This is kind of the reversal of that shame. We run to God. We embrace his presence. We don't want to isolate. And then in that presence, we're invited to see our lives through the lens of his perspective, not just our own. Two, we give thanks. We express gratitude to God for his blessings in our lives. You can find tons of studies that have been done to empirically prove that people who practice gratitude are happier people and have less diseases and stuff. It's crazy. It's like, it's like scientifically proven. We got to practice gratitude. It can be worship that brings us joy. Three, we review. This is where we reflect on our day or our year. You can kind of use this as like a day-to-day -day thing or as like an annual thing. We take notes of the peaks and the valleys of our lives. We take inventory of our soul. And we watch back the game tapes, right? Four, we repent. We take note of the mistakes that we've made. Where was I hiding apart from God? Who was I hiding in apart from God? And what could I have done differently? How could I have trusted him with this need that I was trying to meet? We ask God for his forgiveness, and then we receive his grace, abundant grace. And then we hope. 
This is where we kind of take action and we commit with God to doing things differently. We pray to the Holy Spirit and we ask him to receive the truth of our belonging in him, of our no lack in him. What can I do to commit to live into the best thing that you've prepared for me, God? I'm going to invite the worship team back up and we're going to take communion together. You know, Jesus died on the cross, a horrible, horrific burden that none of us could have carried. And he did that not so that he could just do something really sacrificial and then we'd feel sad about it forever. He did it so that he could defeat death. When we repent, we're not just turning away from death and sin, we're turning towards new life. Jesus does not want you to live in guilt and shame. That's not what this faith is supposed to be about, perpetually feeling bad about who I am, looking at my life as though there's something wrong with me. No, the whole point is that you were made fearfully and wonderfully, gloriously. C.S. Lewis says that if we were to see each other as we were intended to be designed, that we'd be tempted to worship one another. That's the truth about who you are. You are glorious. So repentance is not about just sitting in my filth. It's about sitting in it for a second, acknowledging how offensive it is because what God has called me to is so much better, so much bigger. And that's what the cross and the resurrection is about. It's not about living a life of perpetual guilt and shame. It's about living a life of freedom and hope in the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your sacrifice, that what you've done it was whole. By defeating death and rising from the grave, it's the final word. There's no sin, there's no betrayal, there's no riff, there's no disease, there's no outcome, there's no amount of suffering that can speak louder than what you've done. So Lord, we choose today to rest in that victory. We sit in abhorrence of sin and what it represents and its betrayal of heaven, its betrayal of our potential. And we say, God, we turn to you. Your body broken for us where we receive our healing, your blood poured out for us where we receive our cleansing. And we say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread. He said, it's my body and I'm breaking it for you. Eat it in remembrance of what I've done. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant, my blood that's shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's stand and sing together.